This is the first of three podcasts looking at some of the most poetic shots in the history of cinema. Not the greatest, the longest, most beautiful, or technically innovative. The most poetic. By which I mean a shot that defines the film's content. What I call compound images. For what we see is so strong, it breaks through the surface to reveal the meaning of the film. So, no matter how audacious or iconic some shots are, for instance in Jean-Luc Godard's Bande à Part, when Odile and her friends do the Madison dance, or John G. Avils and Rocky, when the then-unknown boxer races up the 72 steps to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, or in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, when Gollum starts to talk to himself, I'm concentrating instead on an image's thematic force. This podcast focuses on close-ups. It is often assumed a close-up is a matter of space, but just as often it is a matter of time. A close-up can only be defined by the shots around it, and if it is used too often, the impact is lost. The director needs to choose the right moment. Take French master Jean Renoir. The son of Impressionist painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Jean Renoir was celebrated for blocking out his dramas so they could be covered in wide shots and extended takes. His most acclaimed work, La Règle du Jeu, played background against foreground and the full width of the screen so the actors could move about freely within the frame. As a consequence, there are precious few close-ups in the film. But a film that does deliver a breathtaking close-up is another of Renoir's masterpieces, Parti de Campagne. In 1936, when Renoir set out to adapt Guy de Maupassant's short story, first published in 1881, he envisaged it as a feature film. But torrential rains across the Seine-Imarne region interrupted the summer schedule and production had to be abandoned, leaving only enough footage for a short. Yet, reduced to barely 39 minutes, it still managed to maintain the scheme of de Maupassant's story. Monsieur Dufour takes his family out on a day to the countryside. There, they are met by two boatmen, Rodolphe and Henri, who proceed to flirt with both Madame Dufour and her daughter Henriette. While Madame Dufour keeps a playful distance from Rodolphe, Henri manages to entice Henriette to a secluded run on the river, where, to the melody of birds courting, they lie down by the bank. Henriette, played by Sylvia Bataille, is engaged to be married, but is clearly unhappy with her fiancé, and, after some protest, she allows Henri played by Georges Darnot, to kiss her. Censorship laws prohibited the film from going any further, so instead let us read how de Maupassant described it. It was quiet all around. The bird began to sing. He first threw three penetrating notes, a call for love. Then, after a moment of pause, he began in a fever voice, very slow modulations. A soft breeze slipped, raising a murmur of leaves and in the depth of branches past two ardent sighs, mingled with the song of the nightingale and a light breath of wood. An intoxication invaded the bird, and his voice gradually accelerated as a fire that lights, or a passion that grows under a tree. It seemed to accompany crackling kisses. Then the frenzy of his throat was raging madly. He prolonged the swoons on a long line of melodious spasms. Of course, cinema had already presented many highly charged kisses in close-ups. Think 
Greta Garbro and John Gilbert in Clarice Brown's Flesh and the Devil. Hedy Lamar and Ari Wirt Mogg in Gustav Makati's Ecstasy. Or Marlena Dietrich and John Lodge in Joseph von Sternberg's The Scarlet Empress. But never before had cinema delivered a close-up of a woman's face after the act of love. What Wenoir gave us was a sudden, stark close-up of Henriette. With his nephew Claude Renoir serving as cinematographer, Henriette's face is so close to the lens it almost fills the entire frame. Henriette has lost her virginity, and for a split second, as she rolls her head away from Henri, she looks straight at us. De Maupassant's short story is about realising life's disappointments, and Renoir's close-up is a poetic rendering of that notion. A tear falls from Henriette's eye. She might look disappointed in what has just passed, or perhaps she is sensing that what she has just experienced with Henri is an intensity she will never share with her fiancé. That may be debatable, but what is not debatable is that this was 1936. Few male filmmakers were interested in female sexuality, much less their sexual fulfilment. But what Renoir delivered with his enormous close-up was the first occasion cinema admitted that a woman's sexual experience can be separate from a man's and it isn't necessarily fulfilling. When we say close-up, we invariably mean the human face, but it doesn't have to be. And when it's not, it often comes down to what David Fincher said about camera position. There are a thousand one different ways to film a scene. But as far as Fincher is concerned, there really are only two, and one of them is wrong. So when your close-up does not include the human face, where you put the camera really influences the meaning of the shot. Take for instance Carol Reed's The Third Man. It is late in the film, Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, has discovered that his friend Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, is not dead. And to that shock, Holly has been told that Harry is a racketeer who steals penicillin from the military and sells onto the black market diluted doses that are so watered down the patients die. Disgusted, Holly resolves to assist the authorities and trap his friend. What's your price this time? No price, Anna. Honest, sensible, sober, harmless Holly Martins. Holly, what a silly name. You must feel very proud to be a police informer. Harry, get away. The police are outside. They chase Harry into the sewers. Shots are exchanged and bleeding. Harry crawls his way up an iron staircase, hoping to escape through a manhole cover. But when he gets there, it is locked. Carol Reed and his editor, Oswald Hafenrichter, cut to a shot outside the street above. Director of photography, Robert Krasker, who was honoured with an Academy Award for his masterful lighting and lensing, places the camera on the ground, very near to the grate, which a desperate Harry is trying to open. Krasker's lens is so close, when Harry pushes his fingers through the grill, they are the only point within the frame where we are looking. Although we don't want Harry to get away, the image of his fingers reaching up through the grill is, in the proper original meaning of the word, pathetic. It evokes pity. But here is the genius of the shot. We don't pity him, and we certainly don't want him to escape. Because Krasker put the camera in the right place, the shot transcends its own literalness and becomes emblematic of the hundreds of children in Vienna's hospitals who have suffered and died because of Harry's crimes. 
As his fingers inch back and forth like flowers bending in the breeze, you imagine the children as they reached out in agony. Of all the lenses at a cinematographer's disposal, a 35mm is the one that most closely replicates how we see the world. But shooting an entire film on the one lens can result not only in visual monotony, but also fail to acknowledge the emotional transitions needed to buttress the story. Above observing the events, a camera can help visualise the emotions, and the right lens can add, say, a romanticism to the picture that otherwise might not be there in the dialogue. It means that while we hear one thing, the film can show us something else. If not simultaneously pulling you in two directions, at least create a space between the sound and the image for a third idea to breathe. For close-ups of actors, many cinematographers use a 24 or 18mm lens. But some use a longer lens, 85 for instance. Such a long lens takes the face out of the surrounding space without distorting any of the features. But in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, he more than takes an actor's face out from New York's metropolis. He presents that face as something distinctly separate from it. Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, is disturbingly alienated from his environment. And Scorsese visualises this by using lurid colours, extreme camera angles and slow motion. We see Travis moving slowly through the cafes, watching pedestrians as they drift by, and most importantly, seeing Betsy, played by Sybil Shepherd, as an angel. I first saw her at Palantine Campaign Headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. She is alone. They cannot touch her. All those moments show Travis disconnecting from the world, his mind out of sync with what is going on around him. He idolizes Betsy, but when she spurns his advances, he switches his fixation to Iris, a teenager being sex trafficked, played by Jodie Foster. Travis tries to rescue Iris from her situation and goes on a killing rampage. The purgation appears to have cured Travis of his problems. He returns to his job and late one night he picks up a fare. Hello, Travis. Hello. He looks in his rearview mirror and there is Betsy sitting on the back seat. Director of photography Michael Chapman uses a long lens to frame the shot, perhaps an 85 or even longer. And what results is an image that has Betsy's face floating in front of the blurred out city lights. Remember, Travis has already described her as an angel and with her face floating against the darkness, Betsy does resemble a figure in some kitschy religious painting. Travis's view of her has removed her from the rest of her body. What that suggests is dismemberment, an image of profound violence fueled by Travis's continued rage at the world and hatred of women because he feels they do not understand him. Much has already been written about when later, after Travis drops Betsy off, he looks into his rearview mirror and a sound cue lets us know that he is once again back on his route of loneliness, despair and psychosis. But for me, the sight of Betsy's head floating in space is the compound image of the film's content. In the next podcast, we will look at Crane tracking and panning shots.